we are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Classco Immigration Law Partners. everyone, welcome to our podcast, EB1 for the Queen's Gambit. My name is Anu Nair. I'm a partner here at Classco, and I'm joined by Ali Dempsey, a senior attorney at our firm, and Steve Miller, the editor of our EB1 team. So I'm really excited that we're going to be discussing a hypothetical EB1 case that we would prepare for Beth Harmon, who is the main character in the Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit. So before we begin, I do want to take some time to thank T. Martin, who's another EB1 team member, for his chess insight and research on this topic. I will also say that I have not seen the Queen's Gambit yet, so I'm going to be turning over most of the discussion to Ali and Steve to talk about how we would prepare an EB1 case for Beth Harmon. So a few caveats, of course. I know enough that I understand that Beth Harmon is a U.S. citizen, So she wouldn't need to go through this process. But for this particular podcast, we're going to start with the assumption that she is not a U.S. citizen and is seeking to get status in the U.S. because otherwise she would not have to go through this exercise. And we're also going to assume that she is not taking any performance enhancing drugs that would potentially impact her abilities. So with respect to that, Ali and Steve, if let's say I'm Beth Harmon, I come into the office and I say, hey, I'm looking for a way to get a green card and I think an EB1 would be a great option for me. Can you let me know if I would meet the criteria? How would you handle that type of consultation? So the first thing we would do is explain to Beth the uh, standards and regulatory requirements for applying for EB1. Uh, since she won't be sponsored by an employer of any sort, given that she's an independent um, chess player, she would have to pursue EB1A, which is the EB1 reserved for individuals of extraordinary ability. There are 10 different regulatory criteria you can address under EB1A, and you must at first meet a minimum of three in order to be considered eligible. Once you have established that you meet a minimum of three, the adjudicator on your petition then does what's called an overall merits assessment, where they say, okay, you've met the plain language of the criteria, but do I feel on the whole that your petition rises to the level of demonstrating extraordinary ability in your field? So I think what we're going to do now is quickly go through the criteria, talk about how we feel um, that meets certain ones, does not meet certain others, Uh, based on the facts that we were able to gather from the series. Um, We're going to be doing some, uh, you know, uh, extrapolating here and there where, you know, the the, the show doesn't quite flesh things out enough to know for sure. So I think uh, Ali and I can take it from here. Um, Ali, do you want to start on the first overarching criteria Beth could address and whether we feel she does? Sure. So before we get into the three out of 10 assessment, um, there is kind of a ultimate standard that one can aim for with an EB1A, which is showing a one-time achievement um, that recognizes an individual as being kind of the best of the best. Um, This is something that's very rare. Uh, It would be akin to a Nobel Prize, an Oscar, or something very high level in the individual's field. Um, 
nine times out of 10, or maybe 9.999 times out of 10, this is something that's not available. Um, and so for the purpose of this podcast, we're going to assume that Beth also does not have this significant one-time achievement. So as Steve mentioned, what we were looking for in most cases is to assess whether the individual client achieves the three regulatory criteria that are set out in the standards. First of those criteria um, is a receipt of a lesser nationally or internationally recognized award, um, which is something that can be very difficult to achieve um, in a lot of cases. Um, but I think, Steve, you had some thoughts about how we might be able to achieve that for Beth. Sure. So we see in a lot of petitions that uh, individuals will submit evidence of um, awards won at conferences, um, awards won from their employer or from their institution. And typically, USCIS is really reluctant to acknowledge any prizes or awards that aren't clearly open to the field as a whole. Um, however, in Beth's case, we do have the benefit of a competitive infrastructure of sorts in the world of chess that very clearly shows the national and international level at which her achievements have occurred. Um, just to kind of run down a list of some of the competitions that the series uh, notes Beth as winning or placing in. Uh, she wins against a character named Benny Watts in the Ohio U.S. Championship. Uh, she wins the Kentucky State Championship against uh, Harry Beltic. Uh, she wins a tournament in Cincinnati against a national master. Um, a, a, she is co-champion of the U.S. Championships in Las Vegas. And she competes in the Moscow Invitational in Russia, where she is up against grandmasters and uh, national masters. So... There's plenty of competitions, plenty of which are at a clearly high enough level that they qualify as nationally or internationally recognized. Uh, but when filing for EB1, you have to put together documentation to show that that's the case. So an, effect, an effective set of evidence based on the facts of our case would include any certificates, medals, uh, prize checks issued as confirmation of her victory, along with promotional material, tournament brackets, media coverage of the tournaments, um, all of which is aimed at establishing the prominence of the event in the world of chess. Showing the context in which these competitions occurred is important. So with the Kentucky State Championship, for example, um, perhaps it's a feeder competition to broader national U.S. championships, and the U.S. championships are then a route to uh, competing in international events like the Moscow Invitational. Um, by showing this sort of progression um, in competition, we can establish that, okay, you know, these state competitions are nationally recognized because they set you up to compete in national competitions, and these national competitions are internationally recognized because they set you up to be a national master to compete in uh, international competitions. Um, I do want to offer the caveat here that I am not an expert in chess, so if I'm mischaracterizing the competitive structure of chess and of the chess world in any way, I apologize to anyone who does know uh, what they're talking about who might be listening. But yes, so all, all those, all those com competitions clearly rise to a level that we feel would satisfy this criteria. Um, Ali, you have uh, something to add? Yeah, just to add, um, you know, of course, as Steve mentioned, we're not necessarily chess experts, um, but neither will the USCIS adjudicator be. So one thing that is very important when preparing any type of EB1, um, A, B, whatever the category, um, is to consider testimonial evidence from people who are themselves experts who may be able to explain to USCIS what the competitive structure of the field is and what the accomplishments mean within that context. Great. So I think we can move on to the uh, next criterion then, which is providing documentation of the applicant's membership and associations in the field for which classification is sought. 
Uh, these associations must require, require outstanding achievements of their members and uh, must be judged by recognized national or international experts in their discipline. Um, this is also a criterion that USCIS has historically been very reluctant to cede any ground on. Um, they do not accept membership in uh, dues paying organizations or anything that's like a standard professional organization. Um, I'm going to touch on this criterion a little bit later when we discuss something else. But uh, in general, the series doesn't establish that that is a part of any sort of you know broader chess group organization. So we would not seek this criterion in her petition. Uh, the next criterion is published material about the individual in professional or major trade publications or other major media. For someone like Beth Harmon applying under EB1A, this is where you can really make the case. Um, for an individual competing at the level that she's competing at, and especially one whose achievements are particularly notable for um, her being a competitor who's breaking into a male-dominated field at such a young age. Um, she's a person who's likely to have a substantial public profile uh, appearing in the media with some regularity. There's no uh, more effective way of showing the USCIS that you've been recognized as a leader uh, in your field uh, than presenting a bunch of newspaper and magazine articles saying that you are indeed a leader in your field. Beth's presence in the series as a media figure is a frequent plot point. Um, we know that she, when she's in Moscow, her State Department handler rattles off a laundry list of outlets that have come to cover her games. Uh, these outlets and um, periodicals include the Paris Match, Time Magazine, uh, The Observer, which is a Sunday paper in the UK. Uh, we have Reuters, UPI, and a few others. Um, this list um, on its own shows that Beth has drawn the attention of outlets from around the world. But um, having one's name mentioned by a media outlet and an article published by a media outlet uh, oftentimes isn't enough for the USCIS adjudicator. They want to see that these articles are explicitly about the applicant and how good they are and what they do. Uh, thankfully, uh, the series establishes that Beth has this going for her too. We know that after she wins the 1963 tournament in Houston, that the Chess Review calls her a wunderkind. Um, the same magazine similarly praises her after defeating a grandmaster in Pittsburgh noting that onlookers were amazed and that she shows the assurance of a player twice her age. Now, typically we would caution against using any evidence that qualifies an applicant's achievements as being notable for their age. Um, you know, the USCIS will say, oh, you know, well, you're recognized as an individual who was accomplished for being early in their career and say, well, that's not enough to say you're at the very top of your field. But I think that the nature of Beth's field where age isn't exactly a determinant of the level at which one is able to compete, um, we would uh, have some ground to stand on here because she's clearly being recognized as someone who is fantastic at what she does, I would say, regardless of her age, not despite her age. So, uh, Steve, you bring up actually a really great point, and this not only goes for Beth Harmon, but for any other type of EV1 case that you're putting together where it's not just enough that you've been mentioned in newspapers and magazines, it's that it has to be connected to your field and show that you're at the top of your field. So I've had cases where a client will give me, you know, magazine articles one after the other, but they don't relate to their field. So I had a case where um, it was a really famous actor and he gave me documentation that shows that his house was profiled in a magazine, 
I'm like, that has nothing to do with your ability as an actor. So you do want to make sure that what you're presenting is limited in scope to your field that you're arguing you're at the top of. Great. Thank you, Anu. All right. So in general, I feel that's the strongest criterion that that's going for. She has a great public profile. The, her appearances in the media are brought up several times across the series. So we know that that's something she would definitely have uh, to build an even more petition around. Uh, but we're going to move on here. Uh, we're going to have to skip over a couple criterion that she doesn't clearly meet based on the facts presented in the series. Uh, for example, the next available criterion is evidence of the individual's participation as a judge of the work of others. Um, you know, perhaps if Beth had judged some sort of chess competition or, um, you know, written about uh, a game for uh, chess magazine, uh, that's something that could qualify. But uh, there's nothing presented in the series, at least, that would uh, establish this criterion. Next up would be the uh, applicant's original scientific, scholarly, artistic, athletic, or business-related contributions of major significance to the field. Um, in a field like Beth's and in uh, fields that um, many of our clients work in, this can be a difficult thing to establish. Um, in particular, athletics, business uh, sectors like that don't really have um, a standard for showing an original contribution in the way someone working in, say, academia would. Um, we did some research and, you know, found that in the world of chess, people devise chess puzzles, uh, these little logical challenges that um, are proposed to players to figure out. Uh, that's an example of something that may qualify under this criterion where, you know, uh, that come up with some novel, um, you know, challenge or logical puzzle in chess. But again, nothing is presented, so we wouldn't ask for this because we would um, feel it would be too big of a liability for the petition. Uh, the next criterion is evidence of the applicant's authorship of scholarly articles in the field in professional or major trade publications or other major media. Um, again, this is just not one that lends itself to Beth's uh, area of expertise. Again, you know, if she had written something for some kind of chess magazine, then that could certainly qualify. But we don't have anything to go off of here from the series, so we would skip over that one. Uh, next up is another one of the kind of field-specific criterion. Um, uh, it's evidence of the display of the individual's work in the field at artistic exhibitions or showcases. Um, Beth does not work in the world of art, so this one doesn't really apply to her. All right, moving on to the next one. Uh, evidence that the individual has performed in a leading or critical role for organizations or establishment that have a distinguished reputation. Um, I know, so Ali and I kind of talked about this earlier. Um, with the membership criterion, uh, if there were a U.S. chess team, um, perhaps Beth could ask for this criterion uh, if her play in Moscow was as a representative of this team. But since she's competing as an individual, uh, making any claims under this criterion would probably give the USCIS uh, unnecessary ground to issue an RFP. So we wouldn't ask for that since she isn't, she isn't functioning as a member of any broader organization when she competes. Okay, so to pick up from where Steve was um, in our regulatory scheme, the next one that we would consider um, is whether the client has commanded a high salary or other pay um, within the context of his or her specific field. So in Beth's case, um, although we see her winning tournament after tournament throughout the series, um, we don't have any specific figures on her, um, her earnings or her wins from the various championships. 
to try and fill in some of the gaps there, we did a little additional research um, and found that World Chess Championships um, in the 1970s um, awarded winnings um, of around $150,000. Um, we would want to extrapolate that out to the current um, you know, championship structure uh, to see what Beth might be taking home today um, and compare her earnings to peers in the field. Um, we would want to be able to demonstrate that compared to her competitors at various championships, that her uh, overall winnings are setting her apart and placing her at a high compensation level compared to her peers. Just to add to that a little bit, you know, if she had any endorsements, sponsorships, um, things like that, pay for media appearances, you know, anything that can uh, be categorized as, you know, funds coming in based on her work in the field would be something that we could present for this criterion. Exactly. Um, the next criterion um, under the regulations is also very specific to the arts. It's evidence of commercial success um, in the performing arts. Um, this is another regulatory criteria that does not easily or directly lend itself to Beth's case. Um, so we would also skip over that one in her assessment. The final regulatory criteria for an EB1A allows for the consideration of comparable evidence, um, particularly in cases where we can demonstrate that the regulatory structure does not readily apply to the area of expertise for the individual applicant. And this is certainly something that we would want to pursue um, on a number of fronts, probably in a case like Beth's. Um, as a chess player and a chess champion, she is certainly working in a field that falls outside of what we normally see fitting within the regulatory structure for an EB1. Um, Steve has mentioned this various times throughout the podcast today. Um, a lot of the criteria are academic in focus, so scholarly publications, original research contributions. Those are not things that lend themselves here, and that does give us a better argument to pursue comparable evidence under the regulations. In looking at Beth's case, we had a few ideas of how we could um, document significant achievements in her field um, that may fall outside of what we would normally look for in a similar case. Um, the idea is that this is a catch-all criterion that allows us to make a case um, that USAIS should consider all of the other wonderful things that our client has done that really establishes their standing in the field. I'm going to turn it over to Steve to talk a little bit more about the specifics for Beth. Um, but generally speaking, we do just want to make a legal showing that there is this disconnect between the regulations and the field. So we did some research into possible um, things that we could file as comparable evidence in the case of Beth Harmon. Uh, we did find that in chess, your skill level relative to others is determined using something called an ELO score. Um, while only passing mention of Beth's score is made at various points in the series, chess.com does currently host a Play Beth Harmon chess bot, which is very fun, that allows you to compete against an AI version of Beth at various stages in her career. Um, it starts you off, you know, at her early stages when she's learning to play chess in the basement and uh, on through her um, the heights of her success and even beyond. Um, at the age of 20, the point where the series leaves Beth, I believe, uh, chess.com has her ELO rating at 2,500. Um, the bot then extrapolates two years out from the end of the series, predicting that her ELO would have reached 2,700. Um, once she hit that 2,500 mark, Beth was at the level of a grandmaster, 
And while there's no group of grandmasters that meets regularly or a membership organization to which grandmasters are granted access, um, this is a very clear objective and quantified measure of achievement that within the context of our field establishes Beth as being among the best of the best. So we feel that her ELO rating could certainly be leveraged for an EB1 under the comparable evidence clause, uh, as there are established metrics used to determine that score and a tiered system indicating what that score means relative to others in the field. So that covers all uh, 10 possible regulatory criteria and the additional comparable evidence option. Um, you know, the adjudicator wants determining whether or not that has met the plain language of three of those criteria uh, would then do the overall merits assessment. Um, we would feel confident in Beth's chances under the overall merits assessment. She's a very clearly a well-known and well-regarded person who has reached the absolute heights of her field. So um, at least from our perspective, we don't think she would have any issues with her under EB1A. Um, again, were she not an American citizen. So really quick question. Right now, we've been talking about Beth Harmon as if she was transported from the 60s and 70s when she's in her 20s to now. Um, but what if Beth Harmon aged, I don't know when she was born, so let's say age 60, 70 were to come into the office right now and all her evidence is from the 60s and 70s. Would that qualify her for an EB1 now? Yes, that's a really interesting question, and it would certainly make the case um, a bit more challenging. Um, we do like to show that somebody is continually engaged in their field. So if she had, say, won the Moscow Invitational and then retired, and we had you know, a 40-year gap where she wasn't doing much within the field of chess, um, she wasn't teaching, she wasn't competing or doing anything affiliated, um, it would make the case much, much more difficult at best. Um, so we do want to be able to show not only that there's been continuing engagement in the field, um, but also that there continues to be a substantial prospective benefit to the United States and that the individual is intending to continue to advance that field um, as they progress in their career. So one last thing I want to point out that Steve mentioned, which I think is really important for EB1 cases, it encompasses such a variety of different fields that I think most people get nervous when they read the plain language of the requirement and say, I don't have scholarly articles. I don't have people that, um, you know, I don't judge the work of others or I'm not sure how I would be in a position to be in kind of the leading critical role in a company. And so they get nervous and kind of back off. But as Steve mentioned, we do have the opportunity to show kind of similar evidence because this criteria is not going to fit every single field. And as Steve and Ali showed you today, there are comparable evidence that we would be able to use to highlight how this person would meet the EB1 requirements. Um, so I'm really happy that you guys were able to show that the um, that Beth Harmon would potentially qualify for an EB1, maybe a little harder if she came to us in her 70s already having been retired for a few decades, but an interesting case nonetheless. If you guys have a hypothetical EB1 case that you would like us to cover, email us at podcast at classicallaw.com 
or you can email us with any questions that you'd like answered or you'd like discussed on a future podcast. So please give us a five-star rating and a review. It definitely helps people find us and for us to do more of these types of podcasts. You can follow us on social media. We're everywhere, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and WeChat. And you can sign up for emails for latest alerts and blog on our website at classicallaw.com. Thank you, Ali and Steve, for your time and for putting together this fantastic podcast. And thank you, everyone, for listening. For more information, visit us at classicallaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at classicallaw.com. The material contained in this podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed.